Greetings, GrottoPod enthusiasts, GrottoPod listeners, GrottoPodniks, GrottoPod people. You're all here. I'm here. We're not in the GrottoPod. We are actually recording this intro after the fact. Uh, we've got a little departure from GrottoPod format for the next four episodes. They were all recorded at the at the Story Fort Literary Festival up in Idaho. Uh, BQ and I headed up there last week and had a fantastic time. Met a lot of authors, interviewed a lot of authors, did some live podcasts in front of maybe a little bit of a smaller audience than I had hoped, but a realistic one, I've been told since. Uh, for this first episode, episode 60, it sort of fell into my lap. Uh, I was up there earlier than BQ, and the Story Fort organizer, Christian Wynn, who you may remember from an earlier Grotto Pot episode, I don't have in front of me which episode that was, but he's sort of the king of literary Boise, Idaho. Well, he pulls me aside and he says, hey, how would you like to sit down and interview Stuart Onan, author of 16 novels, co-writer of books with Stephen King, Boston Red Sox fan, despite being from Pittsburgh, PA. I said, hey, I'm from PA myself. I like the baseball. I like the Stuart Onan. I will sit down and interview him wherever you want me to interview him. He said, how about a bar? I said, all right, sign me up. He said, well, we're going to have New York Times bestselling author Jonathan Evison there as well, because you know he's got a new book coming out called Lawn Boy. It uh, drops April 3rd. He might want to talk about that a little bit. Plus, he likes to talk writing. I said, hey, we're having Johnny Evison on an episode later in the weekend, but bring him along. You know, I'll sit. I'll talk. I'll be comfortable. Have a couple beers with a couple of literary lions. So we set it up. I got to sit down with these two guys and really... Uh, get deep into the process of writing and character development and scene and plot and all that really inside baseball stuff. Talked a little bit about uh, promotion, publishing. It's a real great, you know, if you're a working writer or if you're interested in the minds of working writers, this is really a good one for you because you really break down um, all, the, all that real gritty nuts and bolts stuff. Plus, you know, occasionally you hear us get interrupted by the bartender giving us a beer or the, you get to hear a little music in the background. Occasionally, Stuart's wife chimes in. So, like I said, it's a real uh, departure. No BQ. So all you BQ fans, you know, you got to prep yourself. She'll be back. She's back for the next three uh, Story Ford episodes. But for this one, it's just me. A couple of really uh, writers I really respect in a nice, casual and relaxed setting. So, uh, and I think it came out great. So yeah, I won't waste any more of your time. I'll let you dive right in. Come join us. Join us at, uh, I think it was the Mode Lounge in Boise, Idaho. Have a seat, sit down, grab a drink. Let's talk about writing. Uh, Stuart O'Man. Howdy. Jonathan Everson. How many beers do I can call you Johnny? Because I know everyone does. You call me Johnny right away. Uh, well, how many You're beers for him? Comedo. You mean? <laughs> so I already did my intro, so I told everyone that you guys are very accomplished, which we're now going to deconstruct by sitting in a bar and drinking a bunch of beers. Yeah. Round one, Stuart's wife, Trudy, has brought back round one. Trudy, what do you got there? Uh, a porter. A black porter. A black porter. Very nice. Very nice. We had a stout at the other bar, right? And I yeah. Okay, and an IPA at the, at the concert, so you're three in. And more have arrived. This is the Bavik. Thank you. It's a bit like dishwater, but... Uh, I thought it would be a good idea to start by just kind of talking about where we are and what brought you guys here. And 
I know we had talked, John, Johnny, you and I had talked a little bit about you playing a little bit role and, and believing in this this uh, event enough to get people to come to it, to help get people to come to it. Why this event in this town? I just think it's so fun. I mean, it's it's this nice, this, a nice little mid-sized city. You can walk everywhere, great bars, great food. Um, and when you come here for this festival, it's a, you just feel it. The town is so just alive. Like, everybody's so excited about it. And how much do you think that has to do with all the other festivals happening simultaneously? I haven't told my listeners yet what happens. There's a million of these forks. There's, it started with Tree Fort, which is a music festival. We came along with Story Fort. Now there's Yoga Fort, Kid Fort, Ale Fort. Ale Fort. Maybe we should check out Ale Fort. I feel like we all live in the shadow of uh, Tree Fort a little bit, you know? This is true. Are you planning on doing some Tree Fortness? I already did some tree fortness. Yeah, you do? yeah. Uh, we saw a band this afternoon from Fort Collins. Mm-hmm. Uh, drank some on the street, which is always nice. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's and the downtown's filling up. Uh, the parking lot of our motel. The bands are coming in. You can see their their, their crap ass vans. And then then it looks like George Clinton and P Funk's like super gorgeous sort of like you know Land Cruiser with trailer behind it. And then there's guys that have you know these spray painted old Econo line with. Uh, a basketball hoop that folds down on the top, so they're going to play hoops in the, uh, you know what, thank in the driveway. I thought that was done. I don't know. That still exists. Oh, no, it's, it's a special hell, you know, being being in the van with the band for thousands and thousands of miles. There's some long distances up oh, here, dude, too. I've done it. Five farting guys in an Econo line all the way down the west. <laughs> what about that part? But I didn't sneaking into kids' up. houses, we couldn't afford hotels. You'd have like some fifteen-year-old kid like sneaking in through the window, and it's like you got to get out by like seven a.m. when my mom gets up for work. So there's really no writer equivalent, is there? I mean, Stuart, you've put out sixteen novels and a bunch of nonfiction, and you've for which I apologize. Kind of. I mean, you've been at every rung, and, and so have you. You know, you had the first novel where you were just nobody, and then you had increasing audience with each one. Did you have the the, the van tour equivalent? I, a little bit. I mean, my first book was with the University Press. It was a collection of short stories, which the, the industry says nobody reads short stories, so they don't really push them that much. And so, yeah, I drove around to different libraries and, you know, sold the books out of my, my trunk. Um... But but every 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 tour is kind of like the Econoline tour. It's very rare that you're you're welcomed into a city and they're going to give away a hundred thousand copies of your book. You know, we just did that in Vienna back in November, which was mind blowing. They gave away a hundred hundred thousand copies. Hundred thousand copies of last night the lobster in Vienna. So the whole town was reading it. The mayor came out. We were on TV everywhere. But in most tours, it's you show up. I mean, Johnny knows you, you go to the hotel or the motel, whatever it is, you, you, you know, you do your drop-ins, you do your media, you go to the airport, and you fly off to the next city. Yeah, sometimes it's 700 people in a theater, and sometimes it's literally like zero people in a, I mean. Well, and, and unlike bands, it seems like there's kind of no rhyme or reason. If you're in a band, you, sh- you do that first or nobody's there, second or everyone's there. If you're a writer... Maybe not so much. Maybe you do the first. A little bit. I think. Yeah. I think. I. I mean, when I. I do the same. You know, I've been touring twice a year, basically for ten years, or to, every year for ten years, like hardback, paperback, and I go to the same spots, develop the relationship with the same booksellers, and I think the crowds usually. Do they you know, reflect that? Yeah, and that's why I keep going back to the same stores. Right, I and the, start at scratch. And, and the booksellers build that crowd, mm-hmm. and they'll have that crowd for Johnny. They'll have that crowd for me. They'll have that crowd for the next novelist. Right.
running in there, as well as you know your true fans who come out. And the thing is, is you know a lot of a lot of book touring. See, you, when you're when you're touring with a band, you're trying to monetize the relationship with your fans a little bit more. So you are trying to like three wall a room and, and pack it in. I mean. It's not really a. It's kind of you know. Even though it's a little demoralizing when no one shows up. I mean, the real purpose of the book tour is to have the relationship with the bookseller, who's going to keep hand selling your book for years and years and years to come, and and, and to you know. So that relationship's really the most important. You got to keep telling yourself that because there's a lot of times, man. I've been in a lot of empty barns and nobles, and they make an announcement. Oh yeah, oh that's a good one. And they're yeah, like, yeah. oh, we have our author up on floor two, and then it, the worst nightmare is like some guy comes up with his 11 year old daughter that wants to be a writer, and it's like, well, there goes everything I was gonna read. You know what I mean? <laughs> material's just a, a little on the blue well, side. That's, that's actually better than than getting the person that kind of just lives sort of in the store during the day who comes up and, and sort of just rants at you and the. Q and A section, you know, gives you their manifesto. Well, so a lot, a lot of people I know are first, second novel, third novelists, and they have always said that it's a lot harder now to do a tour. It's not like it used to be. Is that true? Well, most publishers aren't more aggressively. I mean, my publishers like kind of a you know throwback in that respect. But not even just for me. They they throw everybody out at least. 10 cities, you know, meets yeah. sometimes 40 or 50. Yeah, Al- Algonquin's but. always been good that way. They treat their authors really, really well, and they put them out there, and they, and they, they put themselves out for the book. Um, I think back in the 1990s, that was sort of the, the golden age of touring because you had both massive superstore chains were doing really well. You also had the independents. You had a lot of sort of book radio. Um, I did one tour in the mid-90s. I did 30 cities in 29 days. Jeez. I did Phoenix and Albuquerque on the same day. Did you have a tour shirt? Um, no, no, but I, I, I ended up going to a Sonic because the book was set in the Sonic. You did and I got the Sonic. in the rain. <laughs> yeah. so you said both ways. Sonic and in a Red Lobster. Yeah, yeah. I let, that's, those are my people. Yeah, I like to eat. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we got, actually got a, a Sonic Workers shirt there. We, went, we walked up to the drive-thru in Albuquerque, me and Chris Offit, and said, hey, you know, what do I got to give you to get me a shirt? Game, man. I know, he's, he's got a new one coming out. He was out, a yeah. showrunner for a couple of decades, it seems like. Yeah, he did uh, True Blood and Weeds. Oh, really? Yeah, I think but he was now, on Treme, too. Yeah, it's nice to have him back. He has a novel publishing next month. Yeah, Country Dark uh, from Grove Atlantic. Yeah, wow. nice book. Well, so how does an event like this fit into a book tour? I mean, well, I'm assuming I'm, this isn't part of a tour. I'm not touring right yeah. now. I don't have a book out now. But Johnny said, you should come up here because it's a great festival and you'll have a great time. And I was like, yeah. If Johnny says it's a great time, I know it's a great time. Yeah. And I, mean, I was kind of selfish on my part. I just got the Rolodex. I'm like, who's my favorite people to drink with? Well, Stuart, Willie, Lydia. Cool. Um, well, that and he didn't, he didn't lie either. That, that, was my, um, that was my Chris Farley moment. Cool. <laughs> that would be awesome. That's awesome. With Willie Vlotten, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. I tried to get Willie to do a podcast with us, but when, you get, when you're the combo writer-musician, you don't have a lot of time. Well, Willie doesn't always like to play. When he's doing his writer thing, see, he takes, he takes a lot of pride in his writer thing. He loves his music, too, but he's all about the book at the end of the day. And so I think sometimes it's like everybody wants him to bring his guitar. Because I've done probably, you know, 12 or 15 events with him all over the country. And, like, they're always, you know, sometimes, usually I organize them, you know. And, and, and they're always saying, well, can you have him bring his guitar? And, you know. That would be I, tough. Well, the, yeah. the worry is that it's the writer... because i got to hold the damn mic all day. I can hardly walk the next day. The worry is that the writer is not going to be entertaining. You know, that, that the actual prose fiction will not be entertaining enough for a crowd. Well, and you know, it's, and, 
It's kind of a fair. Well, it is. Oh, it's not, tough, no, well, not in his case or your case. Oh, well, or, thank you, John. No, I mean, but I mean, I, let's. They there's been some bad readings in this world. Sure. And you've done both because you played music. I I have a friend who was on my podcast who did music, John Roderick. He was in the Long Winters, and now he does a lot of podcasts. And he's writing. And I saw him play music once. Like, man, the life of a journeyman musician has gotten way more uh, positive feedback than the journeyman writer. Because they can play in front of a thousand people who laugh at everything they say and stay on their every word. Whereas if you do a reading, you're not going to get a thousand people. But I'll let you in on a little secret. We actually have a way better deal. I know from being on both sides. Well... Like, for instance, this festival. Is this festival. about the guys with the gas and the, and the well, van? The bands are sharing one hotel room with five people, for starters. Um, I think there's, in, in this, now that the digital age has, has taken over music, you, you really you, you really have to monetize your touring more than ever. And, and it's like, I went to the event last night at 10th Street and hearing some of the musicians talk about just, like, what lengths they go to for an opportunity. You know, they'll drive across four states to play for next to nothing, sleep in a van. You know, I mean, it, it is, it, it, in a way, it seems kind of sexier because, like, they get up on stage and everyone's like, you know what I mean? Right. Group Instant gratification. But, like, from the touring side, I can promise you, writers have actually a better deal. Just and, having and, your own hotel room is a big and, thing. And we don't have to. We don't have to tour if we don't want right. to. We can just say no. You know, and the books are going to sell pretty much the way they're going to sell anyway. Right? Pretty much. I guess I wasn't talking about economically, though. I was talking about, like... Adrenaline. And and reception as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, one great thing I think about about writing fiction is that you're relatively anonymous. I mean, unless you're a Stephen King or a Margaret Atwood, your face is simply not going to be known. I wouldn't know Margaret Atwood. No. I know Stephen King, I but he, I also Atwood. see a lot of guys that look like Stephen King. So you know what I mean? <laughs> I think Stephen King is is exceptionally visible, though. Yeah, he's yeah. got a look. Yeah. But how about someone like John Grisham? He's yeah, been like know. the best-selling author for yes. the last, you know, what, twenty-five Is he the guy years. Who's really tall? Was that him, or was it a different? <laughs> no, that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's, yeah. he's oh, the big guy. guy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The only reason yeah. anyone ever recognizes me, and I'm not doing it tonight, is because I have my like monkey suit. I have my my, my fedora, and yeah, it's and like right. a lesson I learned from Your Al Sanders. Yeah. Just wear the same. I was going to say, I was going to say Mark Twain, but you know, <laughs> you or Tom Arnold Wolf, Sanders. maybe. Yeah, Colonel Sanders. Forget who you're dealing with. Same guy. Did you do that on purpose? Was that? Well, it was my grandpa's hat, so it was kind of sentimental. And, um, you know, it's kind of that when you come from a working-class family and you're trying to be professional, you dress up. You know what I mean? Rich people don't. They just kind of slob in and some corduroys. But the working-class people, well, you know, feel like... But, but you weren't coming in a tuxedo, do. right? It's, it's, no, but I mean a no. suit. I always wear a suit and, like, a vest and a tie and a, and a hat. So there was no part where you said, okay, this is my thing. And it'll make me recognizable? Oh, no, I stuck with it because it did, for sure. Yeah. Every tour, my wife has to give me the speech. Like I'm like, you know, I think I'm just going to go in my sweats. This is a really, this is a, it's a book about a landscaper. And she's like, no, right. you got to do it. And, and wear the right overalls. And I feel good. I get that Madras jacket on, and I feel that like I'm nice. somebody. People are like, he must be somebody because that is a loud jacket. <laughs> They don't think you're a sportscaster from the 70s? Or? It doesn't even matter. Yeah, it's just somebody. This is Bob Prince. <laughs> Performing clown. <laughs> Pittsburgh reference. I went to New York, you went Pittsburgh. Yeah. How did you become, and this is off topic, how did you become, I know how you became a Red Sox fan, but 
but why? Um, but you're <laughs> because, because because I love baseball. Right, That's why. Me too. That's but why. Yeah. You already had a team. Well, I, I had moved to Boston in the fall of 1979. Which, if you're a pirate fan, oh, you know what family. happened. Sure. Yeah, we are family. They won, and my best my best friend there was a Baltimore guy. So we watched the whole thing together, and we were living two blocks from Fenway Park. So when, when April rolled around, you could smoke in the bleaches at Fenway Park, and it cost two bucks to go. And the team that was playing there then, they had no pitching. They couldn't field. They couldn't run. All they could do is hit. Oh, it was the You know, the it was the Jim Rice and yeah. you know, Tony Armas and those guys, which was very much like the Pirates. So it seemed natural to sort of take them on. But to become a Red Sox fan. Well, I'm still a Pirates fan. Okay. Even though, I mean, I, I love the team, but I hate the owner. So you have a national like everybody. team and an American league? Yes, team? indeed. Yeah. Yeah, when I did a, I did a peace on Stuart once, and okay. I used Manny Sanguian as the Sangy. kind of. Sangi! Yeah, as the kind of frame of, for the piece. I, I compared Stuart as like the Manny Sanguian of literature or something. Because I, I swing at a lot of bad balls, surprisingly yeah, fast. It's, it's, yeah. You can't play outfield, though they try. No, not at all, yeah. No. But he was beloved in Pittsburgh, right? Still is. He's got a barbecue out in the center field, PNC Park. He's kind of the uh, the Edgar Martinez of Pittsburgh. Yeah, that Edgar Martinez. I was a Mariners fan. I'm so sorry. And that's what it was. It's because he was a free swinger. I think that's where the connection came from. And I always, yeah, yeah. You know, Stewart's a free swinger. Every book is like my books are very different on the surface, but like I think my voice is always a little more recognizable. I think Stewart's more of a chameleon than me. Like his books are not only. are not only thematically different, but, like, the voice changes. Like, you know, I mean, the voice between Last Night at the Lobster and, and, and you know... Speed Queen? Yeah. Not, not, you Do know, you think that's bizarre. legit? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to, to change form and style and even structure to depending on what I'm writing about and who I'm writing about. I tend to fall into the character. And do you do that just for the challenge? Um, and part of it's that, to have a technical challenge to work with as you're putting the book together. It keeps you sort of fresh and sharp. Um, but, but again, you're there in service. In fiction, I think, you're in service of the character. Mm-hmm. So you have to get the character's emotional world across to the reader in the most powerful way possible. And, and that depends on who they are and what they're doing, what's going on in their life. Now, that, that brings up to what I think is an interesting uh, line of reasoning. Both of you really, I mean, you say you, you have a similar voice for every book, but you really bounce around as far as who your main character is. Yeah, what, what he just said applies to me, too. It's all about, it starts with character for me. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why I write, to inhabit those characters. It's like you get to a crew experience that is not otherwise available for you. It actually makes but, you a more expansive person. But what inspires you to write from the point of view of an 80-year-old woman? Empathy. I mean, in a word, yeah. Ex- just to be able to accrue experiences that are not otherwise accessible to Well, you, you're, you're talking to two, two guys here who have written about 80-year-old women, which is it's a very rare club, yes. I think. Um, it, for me, it's curiosity. Canaan, yeah. it, it, and it's very curious. You know, how, do you, how do you live like that? How do you live by yourself mm-hmm. you know, when the rest of your family has kind of left you? What's the spark of that idea? Where does it come from for both of you? I think what he just said is where it came from for me, too. I just, for me, with Harriet in particular, I just, my characters are usually marginalized in some way. And, you know, when you think about it, who's more marginalized than an 80-year-old woman in in our culture, you know? I used to live in a senior citizen motorhome park when I was 17 years old. I was the only, I was my grandmother's caregiver. 
And I, so they had a, a special arrangement with me. I was the only one in this. It was, it was a motor court of probably 500 people, and I was the only person. So, I mean, I, I and, and many of the women were widows. So you heard the stories. You saw the stories yeah. happening. Yeah, and uh, my mom's the same age as Harriet, too, so, like, I had that. So it's not so random. It's not like you decide, I'm going to write about a Martian. You, you had some experience. Well, that's somewhere out there. I mean, eventually yeah. I'm going to get there. Uh, in my I'm case, out of humans. I did a nonfiction book called The Circus Fire, which is about a fire that took place in Hartford in 1944. And I ended up interviewing hundreds of people, most of whom were in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so they'd invite me into their living rooms, and I'd sit down and talk with them. And I'd hear about the fire, of course, but I'd also hear about you know their children and their lives and their neighborhoods and their towns and how the world had changed and how they were feeling now. And I think that was what inspired me to, to at least start writing about Emily in that first book. What inspired, it's such a great book. What inspired you to start writing about Fitzgerald? Uh, Scott Fitzgerald. Um, again, the curiosity, what I didn't know. I mean, I, I knew that he'd been out in Hollywood for the last three years of his life, right. but I didn't know exactly what had happened out there to him. And when I read the biographies, they could tell me certain things, but they couldn't make me feel them. It seemed very flat on the page. Yeah, because you know, and, and I'm glad you did that, because what always struck me about the biographies, I'm a big Fitzgerald guy, was that those last few years were painted as a portrait of someone who was wasted and just done. You know, so what was left for him? They, he, he drank, you know, 14 beers a day and however much gin and just sitting there unsuccessful. too out of line to me. <laughs> someone very productive or, you know, just unsuccessful. What did he do for lunch? <laughs> typing away. But the idea to see it from his point of view. Right, because we have everyone else's point of view. We have Sheila Graham's point of view. We have the biographer's point of view. We have the daughter's point of view. Um, and it just seemed to me that... The last tycoon, what is left, this little fragment that he left, about 150 pages, so much of it is absolutely gorgeous, and it seems to be more mature than Gatsby or Tender is the Night. And I thought it would have been a wonderful book if he could have, you know, been around to finish it off. I love but Babylon Revisited, too. That, too. But but last tycoon, he's writing in the very last year of his life. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that he's reconnecting with his love of language, his love of the world, his, his romantic view of the world. He's fallen in love with the woman out there. He's doing, you know, actually, some very good and funny short stories at the same time to pay the bills, the Pat Hobby stories, mm-hmm. where he's basically satirizing his own life as a washed-up alcoholic hack of a screenwriter who'll do anything for money. So he's able to step back, you know, in his persona as a writer and objectify his experience to bring it across to an audience, a popular audience, is a great job of it. You know, I think he, see, I, that was always my take on Gatsby, that he was doing the same thing. He was, he was setting, he was showing us his dream and then telling us that it was worthless. I don't know if it was worthless um, because Gatsby still, at the end of the book, is Nick. Nick, you know, thinks Gatsby is worth the rest of them combined. But he's able to say, "Here are the dreams that we have, and sometimes they don't come to fruition, but it's still worth having them." And he's back at that. He's back doing that. I think in the last tycoon, now when Monroe Star falls in love with Catherine there. Um, and he's fallen in love with Sheila Graham. So the possibilities to him, I think, are opening up at that point. And maybe that's what you provided by writing that book. Because when you read biographies of Fitzgerald, those last few years are bereft of possibility. Which is crazy. It's like they're you know? as if he knew. Like, oh, well, I'm going to be dead in a couple years. Screw it. I'll just yeah. play it out. 
Well, I mean, he's out there. He's working at MGM, which is the prestige studio mm-hmm. out there. That is, that's the A line. Um, he works on Gone with the Wind, you know, and and he was brought in to write dialogue for female characters. You know, the theme, the main female character of Gone with the Wind wins the Oscar for Best Actress, right, Vivian Lee, um, who in fact. He wrote her first film, uh, Yank at Oxford, as well, in 1937. It's one of the first things he worked on. He writes um, the uh, role for uh, Maureen Sullivan in Three Comrades, which wins her an Oscar nomination for Best Actress. And he's only there for three years. So not a failure. Not too bad. And he makes enough money to pay back the $31,000 he owed his agent and make enough money to, to make enough time to write what we have of The Last Tycoon, plus the short stories, plus the other, you know, all the letters. I mean, he does so much while he's out there, but he's working too much. He's working too hard. And drinking too much. Drinking too much, smoking too much. He's addicted to Coca-Cola. Um, he drank more Coca-Cola than anything. Um, he didn't. He didn't feed himself. He couldn't cook for himself. So he did, was doing everything wrong, but he was busting his ass trying to pay his bills and meet his responsibilities. And I think he does, but in the end, it's it's too much. There's one of those bios of him where the whole thing is just a catalog of how much money he owes to people and how he's trying to pay it off. And in the end, he's free and clear. Yeah, which is amazing. Do it, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So, what sort of research, and for you too, Johnny, when you write about characters who aren't you, what sort of research do you to kind of get in the frame? It's clear what you did for Fitzgerald. I mean, that, that's easy though. That's right, he's a middle-aged white writer who needs money. <laughs> hey, hey, welcome hey, to the publishing industry. I feel like I, I can identify that with that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Trudy, is yeah. that the first time yeah. he's used that line? No, that's an old one. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, for most characters, I'm, I'm writing about Emily's husband, Henry, right now. I'm just finishing a novel about him. He's in his mid-70s. He's in poor health. He's retired. He's been retired for 10 years. He doesn't have a whole lot to fill his days. And so to do research for him, I, you know, I basically looked at the people that age around me that I know and tried to figure out what are they doing right sounds now. sounds a little like Harriet Chance. And, yeah, oh, very much so. Very much so. I think they, they occupy a lot of the same sort of space and, you know... When you get to that age in this society, you're kind of pushed to the side there. And so you feel that you've lost your purpose, if you lost what you're supposed to do. And not, not just in a larger sense, but even day to day. You know, what do you do with these hours? Well, you feel like it's a zero... I mean, you're not, you're not being productive in the way society, you know, deems is productive. Because in a Western society where we're so ageist like this, and you don't see it in European and other cultures as much, I don't think, where grandparents are like this, you know, respected thing. Like right, People right. respect their elders, and like, you know, people want to go see their grandparents, and, and the nuclear family is still together, the grandparents will be living with the, with, with the children still, and I think we just tend to kind of push them off into places like I, I lived, you know, like into senior citizen and, courts. And, and, and no one listens to you. Right? They're too busy. They're doing this other thing that you can't even comprehend. I don't think you need to wait till you're 80 for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but especially for men of last century, uh, you're supposed to be the breadwinner. You're supposed to be involved in something productive and prestigious. And so once that, you see yourself as your job. And once that job ends, what do you have? Because that generation didn't spend as much time at home, didn't spend as much time right. with the kids. And that really, again, doesn't that seem like a, I don't want to say uniquely an American experience, but very, I mean, you know, this you are your job idea. I feel like, I, I don't know if there's another culture in the world that perpetrates that ideal more than America. Well, I think in a way, as writers, we're uniquely unqualified and qualified to understand that concept. Because 
we are our jobs and that we have vocations, but we aren't our jobs in that we can point to a giant paycheck that we bring home every week or a place we go every day. So it's a little harder for us to kind of understand. I'll tell you who it's hard for to understand is, is your wife. I don't know about Stuart, but like, it just seems to her like I'm doing my hobby oh, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? When you work at home and there's three kids, it's not, you know, your boundaries. If you go to an office, somebody's not going to be calling you every time, you know, the baby's got a full diaper. You know what I mean? It's just, it, it, well, it has a you, way of eroding the, uh, that's because it is the swim, right? Yeah. yeah, right. That's finally what we arrived at with three young kids is, she just lets me go away for two and a half days a week, and then I write 16 hours a day, which is, I don't think anybody's really built to do that that doesn't, you know, do, you know, you know, drugs. But, yeah, could, could you, you focus? And, and I'm bipolar, so it's even harder. I, I, that's, that's why I write. Ultimately, that's what I decided in my 40s. I finally figured out. It wasn't because I had these stories to tell. It wasn't because I, I felt like I had this gift or anything like that. I, at the end of the day, I realized that it offers me these big swaths of focused... It's the task. It's like I love to play shuffleboard darts. I'm, I'm like, my friends come over and they're like my game slaves. They're like, oh, let's just sit down and drink a beer for a minute. I know, like, let's play another game. And it's not that I want to win. It's just the focus on the game. As long as we're playing the game, my focus is singular. And when your biochemistry is like me and your brain's always spinning around, that's what I finally realized is that writing offers me a chance to get not only just out of myself and inhabit another character, but 10, 12 hours will go by like that. You know, I forget, you know, eventually I'll... You know, get up and make a peanut butter sandwich or something. But other than that, it's it's heaven for me. Yeah, and for me, I mean, it's it's a positive way to use your compulsiveness. And who else would would linger over a sentence for you know three or four hours, changing it back and changing it back and pulling this out and putting it back? I mean, you have to be a little bit obsessed. And in this particular job, that's actually a good thing. I feel like in the case of Stuart, we have a little bit of a Greek choir here because I'm looking across the table and seeing. Uh, Trudy making sort of the same face oh. as OJ was making during oh, the trial. Oh man, yeah, I've I've been killing her. I've, I've been working on the last line of this novel, Do you work at home? just grinding, grinding away, asking her about every single word. I got I got eighty verbs I can use, and she's like, yeah, she's like it's good enough, and Do you, and she's right. Do you yes. work at home or do you? Have yeah, to yeah, no, I work at home. I work up in the attic. Um, where it's unheated and that keeps you a little sharper. And do you work in huge blocks of time like Johnny does? I don't think so. I mean, I try. I try I to get to. I wouldn't if I didn't have to. To I be can't. honest, with you. I try to get after it just nine to five. I mean, I don't have another job, so this is my you know nine to five is my a excuse. Big Can I just say that most writers I know are pretty lazy. Why well, I, I do nine not to five? No, I know a lot of writers that are just. I just had to put it in a drawer for a couple months. It's like, dude, I got to keep the lights on. Okay, if I put something in the drawer for a couple months, I damn well got better start something else. Yeah, we got to produce. There's no doubt. But I mean, but a lot I, of I want, don't feel that. All I, need, all I need is one page. If I get one page double spaced in that shift, that's all I need. It can be. It can be terrible too, and it can be awesome. Say, or even like one great transitional paragraph. And then there's days where you get three thousand words or something, and you're like, how did that happen? Oh, I try not to. I try to try to keep it even. Just be be very even, steady, and they, they pile up and little by little. But you don't want to get ahead of yourself. You don't want to you know get to that scene and deliver it so, too early. So where do you think? I think it's interesting. Maybe for the same reasons you do that. You work a nine to five and you're sort of controlling your output. Where do you think that comes from? And I'm going in the direction of you had another job, another career, 
before all of this. Yeah, it was but, a career but, that was all very structured. No, it wasn't. No, I was in test engineering, which is feast or famine. I mean, you're either running seven days a week, 24 oh, okay. hours a day, or you got nothing to do. Um, so it, it is. It is kind of like that job, then I guess, because when you're when you're working on a, a book, even though you say it's nine to five, you know it, it spills over there. You're always sort of you know looking at the world and trying to grab things from this world to put into your book. And even after the nine to five shift, you're you know you're revising it that night. You're reading things that are somehow going to feed it. Um, I mean, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're writing stuff down. So you're energized. You're magnetized. Um, and that's when you're writing that book. And when you're done writing that book, that kind of drains away, and you become this kind of dumb, dumb, and well, you become this dumb, empty vessel. I mean, and do you try to time it so that it ends in September, so you can watch a stretch run and the, the postseason? <laughs> no, well, the, the, the postseason been very short for the Red Sox lately. So. At least you have a postseason. Uh, uh, don't cry to me. Go. We're the new Red Sox, man. Uh, we haven't been to the playoffs since what? 2001. 2001. Man, that's a long time. Yeah, no, we have the longest. It's a long streak. time. And you've had some pretty good teams Dude, too. No. Had some high hopes. Haven't even right? come close. Here's what happens. Oh. Then you get each a 44 year old each year old back, and everyone acts I saw like that. Yeah, yeah. No, we're going to bring back Willie Horton too. Reach hero, they call him. Reach hero. Did you see that article on him? I think it was ESPN. He has no other life. Like he has to keep playing. He has See, no idea what that's that's do. what's waiting for us, Johnny. Exactly. No, so we got nothing well, else. With those six no. Besides the kids, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah, every, every time I go by a graveyard, I go, hey, this is my retirement. Well, here's the there good it news. Is. Listen, you unlike Stewart, who had an actual job, I've never been the best job I had besides this was probably telemarketing sunglasses. Ooh, and you know what I mean? Ooh. It's like I really got nowhere to go. That's rough. I don't think you could make up a better job for a writer to have but, had. But back to the idea of, of the writer in, in this society and in, in being your work, what if you didn't have that validation of your books being published? Right. Well, would I didn't you be, would you, books. Yeah, but would you be allowed to go back into that room? Um, do 16 hours? Well, I wouldn't be able to find a woman that would live with me for that long. I already <laughs> lost my first wife because of those eight books. I don't I don't think it's a coincidence. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. because I, mean, I was so committed. I was just as committed for eight books when nobody was publishing as I am now. It's a compulsion, right. like you said. And you may even like some of those books better. No. No, no so really? They were mostly terrible. Some of my old friends <laughs> think some of that early stuff is great. It's good, yeah. And it might have had some little spark of youth that I, I mm. may never recapture. But other than that, like... But Jack, no. you're, pre- you're presenting your ability to keep going as a compulsion, but it's also something admirable. Unless, as you say, there was no other option. Yeah, I man, it's been it that way. Yeah, what, else, what are you guys supposed to do? Yeah. Right? You're not, going, you're not going back to telemarketing. Although I'm sure no. you'd be a better Absolutely. telemarketer now than you were then. No, because uh, nobody will, nobody will, they just hang up on you. <laughs> I mean, the 80s. 80s Silicon Valley, people would still listen to you, and I had taps, man. There was givers and there was not givers. So I had my little thing. I'd move from boiler room to boiler room. Oh, man. And I had this little old lady named A.J. Worth, man. She'd give me anything. I'd change my name. You know, I'm Bill Steele from the Firefighters Association. That's why he wrote the Harriet book. Horribly exploited. That was a payback. It's totally exploited. But what are you going to do? I'm like 17-year-old, you know, like, you know. Supporting myself. But all kidding aside, there are people who wrote eight novels and then 
had to quit and got dust pouring concrete or something, but you didn't do it. You yeah. kept going. Well, you yeah. kind of decide to, right? You just don't let it happen. It's just like any great competitor between the lines. I mean, you're just, you're not, I mean, that's the but, mindset you have. But even if it even if it did happen, you're still going to write the books. I mean, right. I, we, we all have friends who, you know, have published three or four books, and now they're not getting published, but they're still writing the books. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're still sitting down and knocking them out. I think for the most part, yeah. I mean, I know a few that have, 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 have abandoned it altogether. Uh, How do you do that? I don't know. How do you walk I away? I, I think what you do is like, for, I took about a five-year hiatus when just nobody was publishing all those books. And what were you doing and for those five I, years? Well, I ended up I, I kind of a, I lied, I, I guess my radio career is marginally a better job. I was a syndicated talk show host, but it just fell in my lap, dude. It was just it literally wow. the career. That's a pretty, right, good, that's job. Pretty yeah, good, yeah, good job. Yeah, it's a real good job. It's actually a journeyman's yeah. job. Yeah. I mean, concrete. it's like you're only as good as your next, you know, ratings book, and otherwise you're. I mean, there's no. It's actually a pretty awful. I kind of want to delve into this a little bit, though. Uh, so, where was it, and what was the topic of the? radio show. Well, when we started it, I just, what happened is that I was driving around this, like, 77, like, uh, I don't know what it was. It was some crappy monkey shit brown Dodge, and the tape duck, <laughs> the tape deck broke, and so I started listening to sports radio. Not that I didn't like sports before, but I was forced to just listen to sports radio, and then they had this contest on KJR. It's like, you know, be the next sports jock, you know, oh, send wow. in your tape. So, my buddy has a recording studio, and, uh, you know, one of my friends back from the music days, and, and so I went in and I just recorded. I was like, I could do this, you know. I, I mean, I used to be a bartender. You just hold court. You talk about sports as a fan. And so I was one of the finalists, and then I went on and I just killed it for like two hours. I did really good. And, what year and then, then they offered me, this is 98, maybe, and then they offered me, they, they said, hey, you just want to do the spots on Saturdays? And while I was doing that, I decided I wanted to do this sort of National Lampoon comedy type show. Okay. Which, I this will circle back, but so it took like 30 actors and all this production wow. time in the studio, and it was a one-hour show for nine o'clock on a Saturday night. Okay, so by the time we built that up and I got in 30 markets, I'm making like 1,200 bucks a month. It's like I finally realized, and the program directors were like, "Dude, this is kind of a Monday through Friday drive time medium." So they tried to make me into a morning, yeah. morning kind of zoo DJ. It. Well, I could do it, but. I could do it only on my own terms. It really became an integrity thing because I was doing, like, you know, uh, hot talk radio. So I would go on before Tom Likas, who was awful. You know, I mean, at one point he was like a liberal uh, political pundit, and he was you could handle him. But then he started being just this misogynistic, like, you know, girls are just trying to get your money. I mean, he's speaking to these, like, 17-year-old, 18-year-old dudes hanging Weird. drywall and just encouraging them to treat women like crap and, like... So, like, I would get on this, and, you know, I'd have my producer. I'd get a female caller or something, and the producer would type on the type on the teleprompter, ask her if she's hot. You know what I mean? I wouldn't do it. And so I finally... But that wasn't on KJR. No, that was on uh, The Buzz. Outrageous talk radio. 100.7 <laughs> The Buzz. It was awful. It was awful, dude. So I think telemarketing sunglasses was better at the end of the day. Sort of speechless. Wow! Yeah, that. yeah. Both, both kind of soulless professions in a way. I don't know. I think if I could host a sports radio show, I'd be pretty happy. Yeah, but you have to talk about the Mariners, and that's yeah. Well, no, that you don't want to really, do that. That no. wasn't really on the table no. for me. Confession: I, I live in San Francisco, and thus I am a Niners and Warriors fan. So that sort of okay. evens it out. Well, recently, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. The pain of the Mariners. Is, is they saying Garoppolo's your savior? We'll see. Five games is a little quick to you judgment. If, if I can stray from the, the writer 
<clears throat> topic. It's the best time to be a Niners fan because they're not good yet. But they think they might be good this year. It's great. It's horrible being a Warriors fan because there's nowhere to go but down. But aren't you in the same division as the Rams? Yes, and they're better. They're going to beat your ass for the next 10 okay. years. That coach, you know that something? coach yeah. is going to wear a ring You want to know point. something? Yeah. Seattle's going to be 11-5 and five this year. Nobody sees it because it's back to Pete's team. Pete's used to turning his roster over every three yeah, years and yeah, playing freshmen. He gets rid of these <laughs> veterans on the second contract. He, they drink the Kool-Aid again. I'm not kidding. Everyone thinks the Seahawks are going to be 6-10, and 7-9. and nine. They're going to win 11-5. and five. They're, They'll be 10-6. Okay, will they be able to five. run the ball this year? Yes. Yeah, are they well, going to choose a running back? Or cable just, zone just whoever, whoever walks into the uh Tom Cable is off of it. This zone blocking defense is like it's so hard for rookies to get. It's so complex. And now we're just going to be road grading. We've got these six foot six, three hundred and forty pound linemen. We're just road graders again. You watch. Love, love your optimism. Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. It's true. Yeah. Well, you watch. Yeah, right now they're tied with everybody I'll put else. Put some money down on it. I know we're slitting their wrists. So I'm, <laughs> I'm excited because I don't know what to expect. It's like what you just said about the Warriors. I mean, after we went to those two Super Bowls, there was nowhere to go but down. And what I've seen is underachieving. It, it, it got to be where it was really frustrating to watch because I knew what the same roster was capable of, but they wouldn't do it. This year, if they underachieve or, or if they don't achieve my expectations, it's still it's like a story again, you know, a story I want yeah. to read. Right. I don't right. know what's going to You get happen. to the point where a win is a relief. Like, oh, good. Oh, it's not going to be that bad. That's you guys Red Sox fan. You know what that's like. Not really. You win too often. Yeah, well, the, well the, the trouble, like the Pats, the Pats or the Red Sox yeah. or the Yankees is you either win it all or somehow it's disappointing. And growing up in Pittsburgh, you felt that over and over. Steelers fans expect the team to win not just the Super Bowl, but every single oh, really? game. They're supposed to go 19 and 0 every season. Well, and in that division, it's surprising they don't. <laughs> I mean, you know, you got about six gimmies every year. It's kind of what it's like to be a Warriors fan right now. Right. What happened? Right. Lost. Yeah. How is that possible? Yeah. Uh-huh. You guys need Joe Barry Carroll back, man. Oh, wow, Harris. wow. The six foot eight center, yeah. red six nine center. Uh, Jerry West, uh, Rick <laughs> Barry. Yes, we do. We do. Let's and it's hockey season anyway, which I know means nothing to you guys. But Well, it's coming to Seattle. One of my best friends is Nifty Rick Middleton's kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've met he's him. Great, great guy. He's yeah. young and hungry. So to get it back under writing, we were talking yeah, about how do, you, how do you keep it going after, you know, Stewart's published 16 he's novels, probably written 20. I've actually written 14. And the Seahawks have kind of acted as a, a cautionary tale for me. In that I'm, I'm, I'm right I mean, hungry give, again. Give, I just give, finished a five Give the ball to Marshawn, right? Just give it to Marshawn. I'm just right and hungry again. I'm not. I'm, I'm yeah. trying not to feel complacent because I'm a mid-career writer that's actually found an audience and stuff. I'm trying to challenge myself more than ever. I want to feel young. But shouldn't you always be doing that anyway? I do, but like I'm really kicking it in at overdrive. I'm interested in this because I just made the switch to fiction a couple years ago from journalism, and I'm of course hungry. Is that an issue if you're successful? If you publish a bunch of novels to stay hungry? I don't think so for Stuart and I, maybe necessarily. But, I mean, my last books have been what you might characterize as smaller books in terms of their scope or, you know what I mean? So I wanted to blow it up and do another book with lots of points of view and, you know. Yeah, I think I think we tend to sort of move around, do different things. Mm-hmm. Whereas you, you you think of certain writers, they deliver a product that is kind of the same every time out. Right. It's basically the same over and over and over. So, 
it's not that they're not hungry, but they're not trying anything that they, they can't do. And the hope for us is that every time that we try a book, it's an impossible book to write. You cannot possibly write this book and make it stick and make the reader really care about this person who you don't even know yet, right? But this person is so different from you. But do you think there's a challenge in being those writers who write maybe from the same voice over and over again or mine similar ground over and over again? I can't I think imagine it, the stakes are as high. I think, as I think they, they relax back into it a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And what about the pressure that you feel after writing something successful? The expectation. Well, I'll let you know what I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They all You've written something successful. Well, when you're writing, you hope that you feel like you're taking a big risk and that this this might not pan out. You're way out on a limb. That you're doing something that's probably not too smart. You know, you probably shouldn't be writing this book. You don't have the intelligence to write this book. You don't have the life experience to write this book. You probably should not do this at all. It's, it's basically wrong, but you're so far into it that you're just zazzed about it. Like my last book That's that came what I out, mean about the stakes. I mean, they feel high. Well, my last book is about the Jewish resistance in Jerusalem in 1945 yeah, and 1946. Uh, all your books, that's from, the one I want to know how from, you arrived. From the yeah. point of view of a, a Holocaust survivor who right. then emigrates to Palestine illegally and becomes involved in this, this world that he doesn't know anything about. Well, first tell um, me how you got interested in uh, I've always been fascinated by the uh, King David Hotel bombing uh, in 1946. Okay. The idea of this target that is semi-hard, semi-soft because they're administrative offices of, of the British uh, mandates uh, organization there. But there are also civilians there, too. Um, and being a, a child of the 60s and 70s, you know, I'm always fascinated by you know, means and ends and revolution. And so I always looked at that as a sort of a watershed moment in the 20th century. Um, and I became fascinated. Who would do this? How would you do it? How would you live with doing this? Um, and, and as I began to look into it, I became fascinated in that a lot of people that were involved with those groups were people who had simply survived the Holocaust you know, and months later are taking up arms against the British in Palestine. So they're going from complete victims to suddenly believing in violence as a way of getting their political ends, which are so important because they've lived through having the wrong end of the stick. And I started thinking about what that change would do to a person, and I began to think about Graham Greene. Obviously, a lot of Greene's characters are in these situations again and again. And so I just started thinking about that and became sort of fell into to that kind of fascination and started doing research and trying to figure out exactly what the hell I was doing. But again, here's a book that I have no business writing. You know, a, 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 a white Christian American, no right to write this book whatsoever. We need to talk about appropriation. I mean, don't we? I mean, that's because... Because that's what we do. Right. I mean, and if I couldn't do that, if I can't write a black character, if I can't write a, a Latino character, if I can't write a, a 79-year-old woman, then I don't even want to do this. If I just got to sit and write a fat, middle-aged white guy all the time, I mean, I'm going to... But you could do that. I, you could I do could that. do it for one novel, then I'd be bored. <laughs> it's not realistic. Um, we, so I'm part of the San Francisco Writers Guild, and we talk about that a lot. Not appropriation necessarily, but the risks in writing from someone else's point of view, and usually it's ethnicity or, or gender. And I always figured if you're good, you can do it. If you're not skilled, you won't be able to pull it off, but it will be a It'll end up offensive because you won't know what you're doing. And I think there's gradations, too. Like, I mean, it depends how much, uh, I mean, 
Am I writing a, a, a first-person account of a, a slave, in, or am I writing a... Like Nat Turner, a, right? Yeah, yeah, or yeah. a third-person. I mean, you know, there's, there's gradations. I mean, I, I don't... I've never even... It never even occurred to me that I was appropriating anybody's experience and framing it that way. It was always like, that's exactly what attracts me to it. Like I said right. at the beginning, I just yeah. want to I want to try to accrue these experiences. I want to empathize. I want to see what it's like, you know, the old cliche about walking a mile in that person's shoes. That's right. what I want to get out of it. Well, that's that's what the, the reader wants, too. The reader wants to know, how does it feel to be this person? So somehow we, as the authors, have to be able to, to make that authentic and not just to fool the reader, because the reader is often easily fooled, right? You know, James Frey, A Million Little Pieces, or... Danny Santiago, famous all over town, right? Um, or Black Elk Speaks. You can fool the reader because the reader goes in very open-minded saying, I'm going to accept this until it proves itself wrong. Right? But as a writer, we can always smell the coffee on their breath. You always know when you're going to get the information dump. I mean, it's not every writer that can actually get inside the character. That's why I fell in love with Stewart's work in the first place when I discovered him in, at, a, at a time when I felt like postmodernism was really coming on big and there was a lot of this... Uh, sort of snarky or uh, ironic. The smart guy. The smart uh, guys. From a distance. Yeah. A sort of satire going on. And, and then I discovered last night at The Lobster and it's like finally a book that's talking to me. You know what I mean? A book about a guy with a job. You know what I mean? That, and there's so much drama in that book. The stakes are actually so high. Do you have this problem? My, I, critics constantly call my characters losers. They say, oh, he's, got, he's really got away with losers. How does that make you feel? Well, I mean, I, like Janet Maslin said it in the New York Times, and it was meant as a, as a high compliment, right. but I'm like, I don't look at these people as losers. I look at them as flawed people, just like me, doing the best they can. But, like, it's funny that to think that even people that buy my books over and over still view my characters as losers. It's like, how can... Didn't I change you yet? Don't you see? They're just yeah, like I mean, you. you. Point. Is that a problem now where you write about, and you're writing about the, the undesirables. What are they, what are they called? The, the, the deplorables. The deplorables. The deplorables. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a risk to write about, to write sympathetically about someone who'd be a deplorable? See, it, who cares if it's a risk? I, you have to write sympathetically about anybody. Like, even my worst, most loathsome characters... I'm going to imbue with some humanity. You know what I mean? I'm still going to empathize with them. Empathy well, doesn't always mean good. Well, right. uh, under, understanding. That's basically it. I mean, yeah. you have to write with, it, with a very deep understanding of the character where you know exactly what the character would or would not do in every particular situation. Logic. Look at Lolita. You know what I mean? You're rooting right. for the pedophile, and you're like, how did he do that? Well, he did it because, you know, Humbert's logic is, oh, like, I thought, airtight. I thought, meant, I thought you meant the president. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's My airtight. Boy. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's all based on this false premise that you can sexualize a relationship with a child, but like at the end of the day, his logic is so airtight that in a weird way he becomes sympathetic. It's it's it's. But to circle back, I would say, so I have two podcasts, and my other one is called "Is It Good for the Jews?" So I would go That's back and one. read your book, and yeah. with, hmm, okay, what's this? Well, this we let's ask let's this. ask that to Philip Roth, right? Because that's what they right. used to ask about Roth at the beginning of his career: "Is this good for the Jews?" And Jury's still out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, when you're reading Roth, you know that he knows those characters inside and out. They no may yeah, they may no one's going to ask him about authenticity, right? They may be at times annoying as fuck, you know. But uh, bleep. Um, 
but but he knows his people inside and out. Yeah. Um, yes, a lot of them are Philip Roth. Sure, you know it's like Uptake. A lot of them are you know Uptake, and you know what was those. When I think of people like Roth and Uptake and somebody like Alice Monroe, I mean they're writing about a person who's somewhat like themselves at that time of their life. So when they're young, they're writing about a young Updike or a young Monroe or a young Roth, and they, and they carry those characters throughout their lives. So in the end, they're writing about Updikes and Monroes and Roths in their 70s and 80s. And I think they do challenge themselves, those three writers especially, again and again and again. I think in that case, the challenge is using your writing to sort of explain things to yourself. It's almost writing as therapy. Like, what's the world all about? I'm going to write this about this character, and when I'm done, I'll have a little bit of a better Understand. And the character is a lens then used to look at the society that they're moving through. Which neither of you yeah. seems to do. I got some I, silence for that one. Yeah, I, I, I no, I, I don't. I stop listening. Yeah. <laughs> no, in, in, me and Trudy just get no, checked out after a little in, in, in my case, I, I think they are the lens. That the focus seems to be on on the, the character of the individual, but in fact, it is the world that they're they're bouncing off of and are part of. I think, because um, there's a lot of the time I am working with you know, larger world events. Mm-hmm. Um, again, with, with you know, um, City of Secrets or Names of the Dead or even something as, as which looks very idiosyncratic like Speed Queen. Um, usually there's something much, much larger, but that is hidden by using the very particular and specific. Um, same thing with, like, like, Emily Alone. I mean, Emily Alone is actually, it looks like a really, really tiny little teeny book, but in fact it's a really, really, really large, massive. Yeah, and when I, I, I mean, Emily Alone, I mean, there's no way I couldn't think about that book when I was writing Harriet. You know what I mean? Because it's the only thing kind of even like what I was trying to do. And my early drafts, when I tried to use more of an Onan-esque tiny aperture like that, they were stultifying. It was awful. It was like... It was like Harriet just patting around in her house, looking out the window, blowing on her tea, and you know, and, and, and that's when I broke that. See, I, I don't like linear narratives. You know what I mean? And here I was writing this like horribly linear narrative about a cruise, day one, day two, day three, day four. You know, and and, and I, I handed it in, and my editor and my agent were just silent. They were just they hated it. They're like, we don't like Harriet, and I'm like, well, you don't like Miss Daisy either, and they go, yes, but, Je- <laughs> but Jessica Tandy's performance won me over, and that's when I realized that I had to perform. I was so railing against this idea of being authorial because I just want to empathize with the character that I had to blow that novel up. I realized, as a guy who doesn't like linearity in his narratives, I had the best opportunity I'd ever have because this is a novel of reflection and, and recollection and things that don't yeah. work in a linear fashion at all. And also, then I wrote all those passages in like three three. Weeks. You didn't. You didn't want to narrate from underneath and within. You want to narrate from over the top. Right. You know, much to, you know, wacky camera angles, canted frames, overheads. Yeah. Well, tell me if this is a hacky question, but do you bring any of yourself and your own experiences into writing about an eighty-year-old woman, or into writing scenes that make me? Dude, cry? have you seen me when I get out of the shower? I look like an eighty-year-old. I have not had the pleasure, or, or I guess pleasure may not be the right word. Or you know, the scene where the guy runs over his kids. Well, my sister was killed in a very similar... So that one comes from experience. She was killed in a freak accident where she was pushing a car and it rolled back over her. Um, You know, experience always... That's the thing. There's the the, the dichotomy of write what you know and write what you don't know. And I think both of us ultimately are grounded in certain things we know. But um, 
really we just want to seek out. You know what I mean? Those things are always there when you need them, when you need to be authentic. Your experience, you can always draw from it. But there's this sort of like wanting to get beyond your experience. Like I said, I want to be more expansive. I want to have experiences that I can't, in my purvey, actually have access to. But what about themes? I just have one, basically. Oh, maybe two. Masculinity and crisis being kind of the second one. But otherwise, it's always about reinvention for me. I got to believe we can change. You know, it's always about, you know, I feel like the whole penalty of human experiences between these two signposts. One of them is your reality, and one of them is your idealized reality, who you want to be. And my characters just sort of inch their way towards this, uh, through this human obstacle course to try to be who they want to be. And they usually make it about 8% of the way. Like, Craig moves after a 600-page novel, Craig moves to Aberdeen and quits smoking pot, and, you know, there's my hero. But it's enough to be hopeful. But is it a conscious, are these themes conscious when you sit down to write, or they just come up? Well, when you start with character like me, always it's character. it's never really an idea. Even even something like Westavere with 60 points of view and, and a 125-year bifurcated timeline, that's still really about the character of the place. The character uh, place just sort of usurped the, 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 the role of protagonist for me. So, yeah, it kind of is. I always know that I, I'm trying to get this, this character from one place toward this other place. I mean, because, you know, I, I mean, if we're not going to change, what are we doing, you know? Right. I mean, why go on? If we're not going to try to better ourselves or, or you know. Although I felt like, do you, you said you tried some short stories. Do you do short stories ever? Not, I, I did a bunch just to try to, like, break in after eight novels. And the minute somebody wanted to sign a novel, I was like, never. I'm not a miniaturist. I, I mean, I yeah. want a big shaggy thing that, you know, I really got to wrestle with. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because I think in a short story, your char- the idea that your character is presented with the opportunity to change but chooses not to do it is enough. Whereas in a novel, they may, that may not be enough to drive an entire novel. Well, in a novel, you've got to have a character that's got a lot going on in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, even even people like you know Harriet or Emily or Henry, you know, there is a lot going on. They're trying to salvage. It's their decisions that actually move the story. Right. They, every decision they make complicates their journey and changes yeah, it. They right. make it usually harder on yeah, themselves. Harriet could have blown off the cruise. Yeah. Well then, well, then there's nothing. There's, there's, there's no nothing story. at all. It's not even a short story there. I, you know. But in a short story, I mean, typically there's that unity of time and place and point of view, at least in the sort of the contemporary short story. You know, 50 years ago, it was completely different. Um, and, and there's that, that, that moment, that one moment that it turns on. Yeah, and, right. and I mean, a short story can be and, and do anything. Um, it's, it's a lyric form, I think. So I that it, it can be as small as you know, two, three pages, one page, Lydia Davis, one sentence. Right. You know, or it can run 65, 70, 80 pages like an Alice Moreau thing and jump time all over the place. But I think the fact that the epiphany is enough to complete the story whether or not the character actually acts on it. Oh, that's true, but you don't even need an epiphany. You don't even need you don't even need a choice. You know, all you need is just to write really fucking well. You know, if you write well enough, just the lyric intensity um, can can keep a reader in there for, you know, 20, 30 pages. And also just viewing the reader, I, I've always I always view the reader as kind of my dance partner, like my greatest tool. Because, like, the one thing about bad writing is, and there's a million ways to write bad, but it all has this one thing in common. It doesn't think about the reader. Like, if you're being too authorial, you'll skip transitions and logical things that you're just going to assume that the reader knows. If you view, if you view the thing you're writing purely as information on some level, 
then you can really use the reader. You can you can do things like misdirect or you know undermine their expectation, and it becomes kind of a dance. You know what I mean? And and when you feel it as a reader when you're doing it too, I, I kind of feel like they're just two ends of the same process. Like when I read, I kind of want the same thing. I want to get out of it. I want to own the narrative as the reader. That's why like I have problems with certain modernism because I, I see I, I'm I'm okay with that crazy modernism. I'm I'm okay with you know holding off the expectations of a reader or, or even, you know, destroying them or, or messing around or screwing with the reader. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with that stuff. You know, some of the first stuff that I really loved reading was the French New Novelists, you know, who can go for, you know, 40 pages of unbroken paragraphs and no punctuation whatsoever, you know, and let the reader catch up and let them deal with it. Um, or, or someone like Joyce. Fine, I'm fine with that. That's okay. Yeah, I see, like, I love Araby or I love... The dead. I, I loved the stories more than, and I read all the modernist stuff. I mean, for God's sakes, I read against against Wake, Wake three times, yeah, three and a half, because I did it once in a drunken round, and it made more sense then than <laughs> ever. But like, I'm okay I, with that. I'm okay with Absalom, Absalom. I, you know, it's, yeah, there's it's a good for all of it. Do you think yeah. you'd be okay with that if you weren't a writer? If you weren't, well, I was okay with it before I was a writer because okay. I was a reader before I was a writer. I mean, I read Joyce before I ever picked up a pen to try to do anything. You know, I think that speaks to me. I think I was more okay. I, I think I did. I think I read a lot of stuff because I knew I wanted to be a writer because I, I was compelled to be a writer that I may have lost patience with. I don't know. I, so you were not a didact. You were like, this is what I must. Do I'm, I'm, I'm still not a didact. No. I walked right into that. One. Um, you know, I, I you know, I, I love to read all kinds of different stuff. No, so when I'm writing, I want to try out all those different kinds of things. So, you know, I've I, never I, once done that to me as a reader. Never once. In, like, I think I've read like 12 or 16 books. I, I, there's never once you, you pulled an Absalom, Absalom on me that I felt. I didn't feel that way. I always felt, I never felt that you held me at arm's length in the way that Faulkner or Joyce did. I never felt like you were purposely obfuscating my access your no, no, probably not. I mean, something like um, Speed Queen, which is a, a weird, very weird French new novelistic take on things. It's basically a questionnaire and, and a bunch of answers that are given to Stephen King. It's, it's just a wacky setup. Um, that's sort of the, a new novel or the nouveau roman, whereas something like A Prayer for the Dying is is kind of like Poe or Cortazar. One of my favorites. Because totally. because yeah. I am, I'm definitely screwing with the reader in that one. And once I get the reader in the door and the door closes behind them, I can do what I want to them in the dark. Um, what's the, what's the, what's the, uh, that sounds dirty, still. Yeah, well, it's, it's terrible. It's, in a, it's a house of a thousand corpses, this right? Is, this is not one of those uh, parental guidance suggested podcasts. What is the level, though, where you feel like a writer is screwing at the reader so much that they're disrespecting them? Ooh, disrespecting them. Uh, when they simplify, when they when I'm halfway through the book and they remind me of what happened in the first half because yeah, I might need it for the second half. Yeah. Um, when they when they treat me like I'm dumb. Um, yeah, that's it that's, comes back to the dance. If you're aware of the information you're giving to the reader all the time, then you you, you know you can play with that. You know. You can't I say, I mean, let, let the reader catch up. Let the reader catch up, and the reader will. The reader will make a leap. The reader, I mean, I love reading somebody like John Edgar Wideman, you know, who can be a little, you know, Joycean from time to time. Um, let, let the reader get out of it what they want. And if the reader tires, if the reader doesn't have the energy to go on, then you leave the reader behind. What are you reading right now? Well, the reader will leave them behind I'm, as well. I'm, I'm reading Proust. 
Really? <laughs> Speaking of leaving the reader behind. Yeah. Yeah, I'm reading the new the, Lydia Davis, who's the other way, right? Lydia Davis can satisfy you in two sentences, yeah. you know, and we'll do that page after page, like boom, boom, boom. And she, you know, has the patience to translate all of Proust and beautifully. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I'm, about you? Of, of all the people. Don't ask. Don't ask what you Don't ask? Don't ask. This is too depressing. Oh, no. I can never get past uh, my blurb okay. pile. Oh, yeah. That's, you know what I mean? I'm a nice yeah. guy, so I never say no, so it's literally impossible. Do you know how many yeah. books? Yeah, I've you, got you shelves can't. and shelves of You're dead late. people I want to read. That's, and, that's, that's very kind of you. You know, and responsible you know the frustration. Yeah. I mean, and you've been very generous, too. I've had, I'm starting to draw lines just because I think, like, I've... I've after 10 years, I put in enough goodwill that now I can actually, well, you know, I can start saying no. And well, I'm to, gonna, Tobias Wolf's rules are really good when he says, you get one, right? Per lifetime, you get one. You get one. You one. get one. You get one blurb. You get That's one it. quote. That's it. So don't don't come don't come oh, back to come me back with to books. You, no, right? no, no, right, right. But but you know, sometimes you'll have people come back and say, you know, oh, there's guys. I've know. done things for people three times. Yeah, but, but you know, the people I've done that for, I actually want to read their books too. You know, and it's well, there you have say, it. Right. I don't listen if I read a book and it's well, I shouldn't give away my secrets. <laughs> They're not going to listen. But if I read a book and I don't like it, I never say. I, I just say, oh, I'm sorry, I never got to it. I'm not going right. to. I had I a didn't guy, and you know this guy. Or not for me. You it's know just this not for guy. me. I had a guy refuse to blurb my book because he was like, I was really liking him, but then I got to a certain point, and I was like, oh, this is, sounds like hubris to me. I mean, he oh. gave me, it's just like, just say no, dude. Just say no. I mean, yeah. you don't have to yeah. tell me. Just lie to me. Just, I would just yeah. say, yeah, no, I would just say, look, oh, I'm so sorry. My good intentions failed me. Yeah. You know? I say it's just not, not for me. Yeah. I don't even say that. But yeah, that pile, that pile yeah. is, is, and there's certain seasons when it seems like you're getting one like every couple and days. And, 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 you know, that would be, that would be uh, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Um, and you know, and this is a this is a hidden part of the writing world that people don't generally know about, that civilians don't generally know about, is the weight of the blurs. I wonder uh, what they do. I mean, well, me, right, what, right. Do they for work me, what or I not? Think, I think they just help a writer in house. I don't even look. I don't know if the consumer pays attention. What I know is that when you're like a mid-list author, somebody's maybe not getting a lot of attention with your publisher. That if you uh, a more prominent author delivers something, it's like your editor has to send it to publicity and mark. Like everybody, oh that guy, you know, like you know, well, suddenly on, a writer that's being marginalized has to be noticed. I meant on the other end, though. You, you you getting a huge stack of stuff to get blurred. Some people are really nasty when you don't get to it, too. And that's the sad part. But you just got to be a big person about it. Like, no, I, I couldn't do some a person's book recently. And they were, I could just tell they were really hurt. And um, it's nobody, I, I could never do this to somebody I knew personally. I didn't know the person personally or anything. But, like, I just, they made me feel really bad. Huh. Well, I mean, you always feel that, you know, other people have gone out of their way to read your manuscripts and say nice things about them. You know, and that you should sort of give back, especially for first novelists, first short story collections, you know, books that probably aren't going to be, they're not going to go out strong in a lot of places. So you hope that, that that quote on the back may say something to a bookseller, right? You know? Right. Um, and, and that book, bookseller, if they know your work, may read it and say, okay, I'll give this a chance. I always think that they, they basically say what kind of book you have. So if your, your blurbs on the back are from, you know... Michael Connolly and you know 
Harlan Coben. They're going to have crime writers. It's going to be a crime novel. Right. Yeah, if you have Richard Russo and Amy Bloom on this one side, then it's going to be more of a sort of yeah. domestic, you know... Upstate New York. Literary, yeah, New england literary novel. So it, it basically sort of, you know, it positions the book, I think, for booksellers, maybe more than even book buyers. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Well, we've uncovered the mystery of blurbs. Well, sometimes you, you see the blurbs on the back and you're like, what? You know, yeah. they're all over the place, you know. As, I, as a reader, but it's funny, as a reader, uh, before, you know, when I was a semi-civilian, before I got into the writer's room and met a bunch of other writers, I didn't give them a second thought. I had no idea the politics that went into them and all the back and forth that went into them and the, the burden on writers who were trying to get a bunch of stuff done and then are faced with a big stack of books they're asked to blurb and... There's nothing worse than having to ask anybody. You know what I yeah. mean? It's terrible. Yeah, that too. Stewart knew before I ever had to ask him for a blurb how much I respected him. I'd already written a piece about him, and you know, I mean, still, it's just it's a it's a really hard ask. And it's to have somebody graciously tough. say, "Yeah, it'll be." I mean, I've been lucky. I've never had a publisher find a blurb for me. My publisher's never found. It's a, very I've found rare. Yeah. Myself. Yeah. Yeah. So so it is often you know writers asking other writers, which right. makes it even harder. Yeah, because you, know, you, you know want to be nice. Their time, and yeah. you know, you know. Yeah, and there's probably that risk. What if they don't like the book? Right, right. And what do you do if you really just don't like a book? Right. You know, it's like if you're trying to review something that you really hate, you just sort of just got to pass on it and say, "That's what I know, do." I'm I mean, not, I'm, not gonna, I'm never going to do a hatchet job on. I, no. You know, even if I don't like it, I know it's hard. It's hard to write a book. So, like, whenever I've been assigned a book and I read it, and I'm just like, I hate this. I'm just like, and you look at this. Can I get a new one? You look at this book, and you know, the person has spent three, four, five years of their life, and so right. much hope, and so much effort, so much of them goes into this thing, and it's sitting there, and it's like. You know? Yeah. How can I get it's out tough. of this? It's tough. <clears throat> so, you know, I think, because I know you've got to go pick up your nephews. That's right. Coming into town. Yeah. And we've been at it for an hour, so I think I'm going to wrap up, which leaves right. us the rest of the evening free. Oh. Um, before we go, though, I want to give you guys a chance to, to send people to your websites and stuff. So, Johnny, why don't you start telling your website? I, I don't know. know. This is like, <laughs> really well this is like online archaeology no, here. I think it's like JonathanEvison.net or something. No. I mean, I don't know. In the 90s, dude, the, the, the website. Larry now, doesn't believe it. No. Believe because it I can't be. You could mistake it for a just, I say just find me on, on Facebook. I'd rather, like, you know, get some personal. Do you do the you know, Twitter? I don't. I, I mean, I have a couple thousand followers, but I just don't like... I, I like Facebook because, look, I've got friends that are my kindergarten. You know, I mean, I, all the way up, my entire tribe throughout my whole life, and I've lived a pretty dynamic life, they're all there. Okay. Except for That's a few neat. females that got married, and I never figured out their, uh, you know, it's married name. Best. It is yeah, harder to find your old friends that are women that may have taken their... No, but other, my whole tribe is there. I, I would be... I know I don't have any privacy anyway, man. I mean, they can, with Google Earth, they can, you know, hey, you let Zoom in on your Johnny. house, then. I mean, they can see right into my house. So I'm not even. I got yeah, right. So uh, I like that because it's very personable, and I, I like I, I get okay. why people don't like it. But for me, I'm a I'm a personable person, so I just love to be able to gather so my tribe there. Facebook, there you go. Uh, the new book comes out April third. Yep. Lawn boy. Lawn, Lawn boy. boy. Great right. title. Great cover too. It was called Mike Munoz Saves the World, but everybody what? got yeah, everybody got tired of my long titles. They're like, dude, we gave you the revised fundamentals of caregiving, but this one's got to be shorter. So well, it makes me think of Scott Pilgrim, you know. It's, well, and it sounds a little like the uh, 
the, what was the steam shovel guy when your kids Mike were, Mulligan. Yeah, Mike Mulligan's steam shovel. I've read it many times. Sure it's a great one. Have. The pokey little puppy's the one you want to avoid, because I loved it when I, I was like it. four. Oh my God, it was my favorite book. Dude. I, it, it's so repetitive. It's horrible. Oh. It's like I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say. Just it's, keep going out. Keep getting no, I thought you were going to say it's, it's, it's just heartbreaking, right? So you're a professional wow. writer, sort of. You've got a website and uh, the Twitter and all that stuff. Uh, I've, I've got a website. Okay. Uh, it's going to be stewardonan.wordpress. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Forward slash. Forward <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But. That's about it. That's about it. That's All about right. it. I mean, I think Viking Viking does a Facebook page for me. Okay. Um, and so, but I, I don't do the personal Facebook thing. is in third person, but I don't know. Exactly. Is, are, really? Who's actually exactly. writing it? Are you actually? Yeah. No. no. Yeah. So it is actually yeah. third yeah. person. Yeah. Ricky, if I was going to do that, I'd yeah. still be writing it in yeah. third person. Yeah. Uh, Johnny would love to see you out at... Uh, I'm working on a novel called Henry Himself. It's the companion piece to Emily Alone. Emily alone is sort of my Mrs. Bridge, and Henry is sort of my Mr. Bridge. Um, and that's going to be coming out, I think, next April. So, yeah, okay. April 2019 from Viking. Awesome. As for us here on The Grotto Pod, you can find us at The Grotto Pod on Twitter or email us at grottopod at gmail.com. That's it for Larry, us. Larry, 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 That I normally don't say, and that is read, write, and just keep And working. support your public library. That's right. And you're right.